Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And welcome to my perfect console. I'm Simon Parkin. Each episode, I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present, or the one that so obsessed them that it caused them to fail their exams. Or maybe it was anything that got them through a breakup. Games like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, on my perfect console. My guest today was a schoolboy living on a London council estate when he sold his prized BMX bike to raise money for programming books and taught himself to write computer games. After several knockbacks, in 1983, at the age of 17, he sold a game for £300 to a commercial publisher. He soon made a name for himself in the emerging Britsoft scene, programming the Commodore 64 version of Jet Set Willy, which sold more than a million copies. Having worked on dozens of his own games, including Chimera and Pandora, in 2005 he joined Sony PlayStation, where he commissioned more than 100 titles, including the hits Hellblade and No Man's Sky. Today, he mentors industry newcomers, produces games designed to promote mental health, and sits on the board of the British Games Institute, the video game equivalent of the BFI. Welcome, Shahid Ahmad. Pleasure to be here, Simon. So, perhaps you could just start off by telling me what life was like on that council estate when when you were a teenager. Grim. I'm sure there must have been some good memories, but... When I think back to that time, I think of the constant anxiety 
around a potential racist attack or a bullying incident. Whereabouts were you in London? I was in Marlebone, and not the posh bit of Marlebone either. London's not like New York. New York, you've got very precise blocks, and each block is relatively homogenous, whereas in London, you know, you can have a sharp divide in the same area very quickly, and I was on the rough side of Marlebone. And how would your family come to be in England? I, I think they were originally from Pakistan, is that correct? Well, they were born in India before the partition and they moved over to Pakistan, the newly created Pakistan during partition, witnessed the horrors of partition. And they moved over to the UK in, I believe, the late 50s. And so I was born a stone's throw from the PlayStation offices, actually. God, that's a long time ago. What was life like at school? You allude there to some racist bullying. Was was the atmosphere in London very difficult for immigrant families like yours? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my first primary school was good. I enjoyed that. The few memories I have from my first primary school are, are positive and uplifting and supportive and nurturing. The kind of thing that you would hope to experience at age six or seven or whatever it was. Yes. The next primary school was fine. That was the one in Marlebone because we moved away from central London to slightly less central London. That one had racism. It was a good experience overall. I did very well academically there. Uh, secondary school was awful. It was, it was the worst thing that could have happened to me and the best thing. The worst thing because I had to dumb down to survive. It was the best thing because... That's where I met the friends who would introduce me to computing. In this atmosphere where, where life is difficult at school and, and at home, I believe your, your parents were divorcing too. What role did video games play for you? Were, were they an escape? And, and, and in fact, how did you first encounter them? The first time I saw a video game was late 70s, I think, in a friend's B&B. It was a very 70s B&B. You know, we had paisley carpets and and really odd wallpaper, which of course was all the rage at the time. But down the end of one of these corridors was a Space Invaders machine, which just looked like a piece of the future. Something from 2001 Space Odyssey had dropped out of the sky. Right. Mm. And I saw it a few times, and eventually I got a 10p to try it, because 10p was a lot of money for me as a kid. And so I didn't actually have a 10p until perhaps my third or fourth visit and I got to try it and what bewitched me was the idea that for the first time in my life I had control over the programming on a video screen. Yeah of course yeah. And that was really quite shocking and then after that I would do the odd bit of car washing however I could scrounge money I would take that money and I would pump it into the growing arcades at the time. That was my first exposure to video games. And I was, so I think I must have been 10, 11, that sort of age when I first really became exposed. Yes, it's quite unusual to have an arcade machine in a bed and breakfast. Absolutely. Had it not been there, I'm not sure how many years it would have been before I'd got one. So, Shahid, I'm asking you to choose the five video games that are going to go on your perfect console to be marketed to the world. And uh, I believe your first choice is from 1980, when you must have been about 14 years old, I suppose, and it was for the Atari 400 games machine. Um, you know, a working class family living on a, on a council estate. How did, you, how did you come to own this machine and, and what is the game as well? I was feeling a little bit disengaged at school. I certainly didn't like computers 
they were really boring. And the programming, what little programming I'd been taught was very functional, Cecil, a very old teaching language. That that really wasn't enticing at all. Yeah. But then a friend of mine gave me a leaflet, and the leaflet was for the unreleased ZX Spectrum, which could be bought in a 48k byte version, which was frankly an astonishing amount of memory at the time. And I wondered how that amount of memory could ever be filled. <laughs> so th the point being is that this was such a step up from all of the computers that I knew about at the time. I thought, hold on a minute, if this thing can play arcade games at home, I've got to have one of these. I started to beg my mum, who wasn't loaded, to, to buy a computer. And the problem was the Spectrum wasn't out. Right. So while the Spectrum was certainly advertised at a low price, 125 uh, for the 16K version and £175 for the 48K version, it wasn't out. And so I couldn't get it. So I had to look for alternatives. And the Atari 400 wasn't exactly an alternative because it was so OP, if we use the modern parlance, compared to the Spectrum, that it was similarly more expensive. I think it was around 300, 350 pounds or so. So that's a lot of money. I think yeah. I've worked out since that that's over a grand in today's money, maybe a lot more than that inflation adjusted. So she puts it on her credit card. I mean, that's a very long story short, but I had been begging for a couple of weeks, uh, which felt like years. And, um, and home I came with an Atari 400 with a cassette deck and the fabled Star Raiders. There was nothing like it in the arcades, not that I'd seen. It was profoundly spectacular. I mean, there have been very few games in history that have stepped forward and made such a quantum leap. And, and those shocks for me are always the most wonderful and profound moments in history. Because, you know, we, we don't have the benefit of hypersleep. Because if we did, we could go to sleep for 10 years, wake up and be shocked every <laughs> single time, right? I mean, because let's face it, the last half century has been shock after shock after shock. But we're human beings. We, we just take it in our strides. We just adjust and absorb. But sometimes something happens that breaks that continuum. And for me, Star Raiders was one of those moments. Can you just descri describe the game for us? It's a, it's a little like Elite, I suppose, isn't it? Oh, but, um... low blow. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bit more arcadey than Elite, uh, a bit more tactical, a bit more fast-paced so it's a space shooter with a tactical element incredible depth the most astonishing sound particularly for its time yeah. it still holds up today by the way obviously the graphics don't hold up but the sound was actually created by doug nebauer who created star raiders and it basically is this space battle simulation where you're protecting these star bases from the attack of these Xylon ships <laughs> and these attack ships take on various forms and you're playing in 3d you know there's a star field you're moving around in 3d you you can hyper uh jump from one sector to another you've got a galactic map a sector scanner uh you've got your attack computer you've got your shields your engines which are smoothly variable using the uh, number keys and so it had a tremendous amount of depth it had a tremendous amount of replayability. It was graphically overwhelming. It was sonically 
so far ahead of its time that it, it still holds up 40 plus years later. And, and so if all of these elements combined to produce this feeling of future shock that I hadn't quite experienced before, not even in any of the arcade games I'd played. And, and for that reason, and because it was my first love and because I played it to death and because I became so good at it, and because I used to trade cups of tea with my kid brother to let him play Star Raiders. Wait, what do you mean? You'd you'd send him off to make you a tea and then he could have a go? Yeah. If you want a game of Star Raiders, you're going to have to make me a cup of tea. <laughs> and he'd do it. Did he, This is the era, it's two or three years after the first Star Wars comes out. So did, did it feel quite zeitgeisty, you know, in the sense of space travel and dogfighting in space, all of that stuff? Oh, of course. And I'd grown up watching Star Trek and Star Wars and, and all of those things. So I was primed for sci-fi and computers seemed to be the natural home for games that explored sci-fi. And I think that there's there's got to be a large cross-section of people who love computing and love sci-fi because computing is sci-fi. Obviously, the, the fi bit has dropped away a little bit. These things actually exist, but they feel like sci-fi. What do you think convinced your mum to max out her credit card on buying you this machine? I don't know. It's a great question. I've never been able to answer it. She said there was something about your attitude that convinced me you were serious and this was serious. So it might have been just my pitch because I I think I tried absolutely everything. You know, I, I talked about how educational it would be, how it would give us a chance to make uh, money eventually if we learned how to I, and the thing is, I'd, I'd say anything to get it it's not that I thought I would become a programmer because I hated programming I wasn't interested in programming it, it wasn't that I had a desire to to become a programmer and so I used that to convince her no I just needed to play Star Raiders and I needed to have arcade games in the home and I thought I'd make the rest up as I went along I think she saw this as as a way of giving her son an advantage that perhaps other similarly impoverished youngsters didn't necessarily have. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You say you primarily wanted the machine to play games, but you also were quite entrepreneurial, even from you know this early stage. You you start making games, you start sending them in to, to Virgin, um, the publisher, to see if they'll take them on. Could you just uh, tell us a little bit about 
you know, what happened there and how you came to sell your first game as well. You know, you're, you're a kid. You've got all the time in the world. There's no other responsibilities. There are no distractions. There are no mobile phones. There's nothing to do. Everyone outside is a racist. I'm not going to be playing outside. So I'm sitting in front of that machine constantly, experimenting, 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 constant feedback, constant feedback. I'm getting better and better and better. And so I get to the point where I'm able to make a game. So the, these entities called publishers, I don't even know if they were called publishers. Back in the day, we called them software houses. So I would send them stuff and they would return it. And uh, invariably, it was because the game wasn't good enough. And they were right. My games weren't good enough. Virgin did respond, and it was Nick Alexander at Virgin who responded with some handwritten messages. He was the managing director. Yeah, the managing director uh, sending me a form letter, albeit with a personalised scribble written over the top. I never forgot that. And he's he's been my example for how to respond to to people who are really trying you know they're not wasting your time they're trying they're hopeful they're young right mm. you you've got to give them a little steer and he did and i did listen to him but there was one in particular uh, i sent off a ripoff of an atari game at the time called i believe stratos i called mine imaginatively camulus he rejected that and i was convinced that was going to get signed i got the rejection letter flung it on the bed threw myself face down on the bed. My mum, I think, sensed something was wrong. Came upstairs, stood over the bed, uh, had a look at the letter. She can't really read English. But she did her best spelling the letters out. And she she asked me what happened. And I said, they turned it down. And she says, the new one? I said, yes, the new one. And she says, well, get up and make another one. <laughs> that's my mum good advice uh, so you know what I did I got up and I started making another one and that other one was Storm in a Teacup which was the one that did get picked up by Arctic your mum's advice there is just the only advice really to anyone trying to do anything creative is you just have to learn to deal with rejection don't you pick yourself up and keep keep going until it until it works until one gets through yeah, I mean, I was only one year into, well, less than a year in, into development. I'd created a few games, sent them out, and they were all rubbish. But I was 17. You know, I, I was still a kid. I was still notionally supposed to be at school. Of course, I was bunking off all the time by this point. And the fear was that I'd never be good enough. But her remedy was actually all I needed, was just to keep up that process of iterating and improving. Um, can you tell me about your second choice? My second choice is another one of those breaks in the continuum of time, and that's Night Law by Ultimate Play the Game for the ZX Spectrum. This came out towards the end of 1984, by which time I'd, I'd made Jet Set Willy. And I was in a bit of a funk, actually. I was, I was worried that my young career was already at an end, which I know seems like an absolutely absurd thing to be thinking at such a young age. But there was no industry at this point. It was a fad. 
You know, we didn't know it was going to be an industry. It was really early days. And it could have gone the way of CB radio. I'm glad it didn't, because I think we're a lot cooler than CB radio and a lot more useful too. But Night Law really was shocking. So first of all, Night Law is a really simple action-adventure game. But it featured this cute little character called Saberman who morphed into a werewolf character. And this formed part of the game's gameplay. But what made this little action-adventure so special was that Chris Stamper, who was the lead programmer and one of the co-founders of Ultima Play the Game, had invented a graphical technique which he called filmation, which essentially was a smooth cartoonish isometric 3D that ran fast enough to, to be playable. And nobody else had done anything like this before. The closest, I would say, was Sandy White with Antitac. But these were much smaller cells. The graphics were nowhere near as detailed, you know, little stick figures. And the, the beauty of Night Law was characters could go smoothly behind and in front of stuff. So if you think about it, what you're seeing, we didn't know the technique was isometric. We didn't know that it was essentially a 2D mechanic. We thought we were looking at a 3D game. How, how can a game on a spectrum look like a cartoon? where the character can smoothly move behind in front of things in a 3D space. This reawoken my interest in video games, and I started to very closely examine how it was done, to the point where, when the game was paused, I would take measurements off my little black and white TV. I would count individual pixels, or as close as I could, because it was almost impossible, given how blurred the, those original uh, images were. But you could kind of make rough guesses because you knew they do things like have them in groups of eight and so I, I took measurements and then eventually realized hold on a minute this is isometric I mean I didn't know the word isometric but I had figured out by then that it the, the graphics were regular enough that they could be drawn essentially as 2D and that this wasn't full 3D image it, we were being fooled into thinking it was 3D but it didn't matter because by then the, the shock was in place, the effect had been achieved, yeah, and it was just glorious. I mean, it wasn't, for me, the greatest game they ever made. I think they made a few that were better. But in terms of that shock, and that's the thing I love about video games and about computing technology in general, it, it was profound. And it's also the game that influenced me into snapping out of my funk, getting back into coding again, loving it, enjoying it again. And I made Chimera as a result. And I, I think I was the first, if not one of the first, to to do it. What's the most appropriate word? Because the, the word that my uh, ego keeps chucking up is rip-off. And I have to shut it up and say, no, no, homage, no, no, clone. Use the other words. No, rip-off. I ripped it off. <laughs> and what I ripped off was not obviously the game. I was inspired by the style and I thought I had to try and copy it. Now, of course, the way I did it, this this reverse engineering thing was not by actually examining the code because I didn't have the the chops or the, the equipment to do that. But it was by reverse engineering the idea and wondering how one might recreate that effect, which I did, but much more slowly. And that was years later. They actually asked me to do the Commodore 64 versions of both Night Law and Alienate, but that's a, that's another story really? altogether. I didn't yeah. know that. I mean, that's fascinating. You saw, you essentially reverse engineered it 
just on site with your nose pressed to the TV glass, really. And then... Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I mean, I was there with my ruler, with my paper, doing, you know, tracing outlines and <laughs> taking measurements and, and just trying to work out how they might have achieved this impossible effect. Mm. So, uh, I mean, for younger listeners, Ultimate then morphs into Rare, the company behind um, GoldenEye and Perfect Dark and many other famous games and still exists today. So it, it just quickly tell me how the uh, the Stamper brothers got in contact with you because, you know, you I suppose there was a chance that they would have been a bit uh, annoyed at, uh, <laughs> that you were making a game that, in your words, was a rip-off or, or was it not like that? No, no, I, I was no competition. <laughs> Telecomsoft had the rights to produce or rather port some of Ultimate's games to the Commodore 64 and other formats. So Saberwolf had already been done, and so this would have been 86, I think, that they pulled me aside to this secret meeting and asked me if I might be interested in converting Nightshade onto the Commodore 64. Now, Nightshade was one of the follow-ups to Night Law, by Ultimate Play the Game, except this was scrolling isometric 3D. So it was even more impossible. I mean, it wasn't as good a game as Night Law, in my opinion, but technically it was an absolute masterpiece. And there's no way on earth anybody is ever going to be able to get a game like Nightshade ported from the Spectrum to the Commodore 64 because of the architectural limitations. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I said, yes, of course. I mean, I was, there's no way I was going to turn that challenge down. And it wasn't so much a challenge as the honour of working with what I thought was the the best video game creator in the world. So that's how that came about. And then I started to have conversations with Tim and Chris Stamper, and eventually they, they were mostly with Chris. And they were charming, and they were they were lovely, and they were extremely forthcoming with their time. And they gave me hours on the phone, actually, uh, talking me through what was going on. And then eventually, when I started to work on Pandora, something I'd word of mouth agreed with uh, Telecomsoft that I would do for them. And I was pretty much uh, Telecomsoft's hot property at that time. They're, they were nurturing a few talented developers, but they wanted to work with me on absolutely everything, it seemed. So... I felt like I had a gentleman's agreement with Telecomsoft, but Ultimate, and uh, in this case Tim, actually suggested that I do Pandora for them, given that there was no agreement in place. And I said I felt duty-bound to honour my word-of-mouth uh, arrangement with Telecomsoft and that they had been good to me and that no matter how much my my heart said ultimate. I felt like I absolutely had to honour that obligation. It's one of the biggest regrets, if not the biggest regret, uh, of of my career. Well, I mean, I suppose you were you were trying to be honourable, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, it sounds weird that I'm I'm talking about a point in my life where I felt like I did the right thing and I regret it because that doesn't happen often. It really doesn't. You don't. You don't always get punished for doing the right thing, but you do sometimes. I could have taken the other course and I could have reasoned that that wasn't dishonourable because nothing was written down. No one had signed a contract. These things happen all the time. It's just business. Yes. But that's not 
the way I like to do things. And it wasn't the way I like to do things then. And so, so that's what happened. I've read before that your, your father was quite discouraging when it came to your ambitions in terms of uh, becoming a, a video game maker. And by this point, you're, you're one of the most successful, as we call them now, bedroom programmers of the 80s. Um, did his did his view of what you were doing change at this point? He was still suspicious. So in the eighties, he was still suspicious. He started to change his tune towards the by the mid nineties because I'd been doing the same thing for so long, and clearly the industry was growing, and he was reading about it. But you know, my mum and dad were divorced, and so he didn't really have an insight into my life or my thoughts or what's going on. And he's very conservative, really conservative, a deeply honourable man, very traditional in many respects. And he he wanted me to pursue some kind of traditional career. He wanted me to go to university. And of course, I didn't do that. And I regretted not going to university for, for decades. And now I'm so glad I didn't. I mean, I suppose in a way, university would have slowed you down because you were you were already up and running, weren't you, by 17, 18? Absolutely. I got into it at 16. By 17, I was up and running. By 18 and 19, I was absolutely in my prime. So if I hadn't had that run-up, you know, the three years from 16 to 19, I don't think I would have ever become as established as, as I did. And that's not to say that the time since hasn't been punctuated by some serious disasters. But, you know, there's always that that background of, of knowledge and experience and skills that I can fall back on and use to pick myself back up again. And by the mid-80s, you're still interested in, in arcades, um, as I can tell from your, your third choice. <laughs> yes, Gauntlet. What a game Gauntlet was. Gauntlet was a simultaneous four-player cooperative, grudging cooperative, mythical battler. You could choose from a number of characters. You had Thor, who was the archetypal warrior. You had Valkyrie, the fleet-footed fighter. I can't remember the, the elf's name, or whether the elf actually had a name, but the elf obviously very good with the crossbow. And you had the wizard. And then I'd go to the arcades with my friends and we'd get five pounds worth of 10p coins. And we'd spend a couple of hours just pumping that machine with our coins and playing this four-player dungeon battler. Those are some of the happiest times of my life. I was with my friends and we were sharing, <laughs> we were sharing a battle, you know. I, I guess if you, if you imagine the, the people who grouped together to play games like Fortnite today, that would have been the, the closest equivalent of the time because we didn't have networks yet, but we did have multiplayer arcade machines. Mm, yeah. And Gauntlet was one that felt like free to play. Like you could just keep pumping money in and it would compensate for your lack of ability. <laughs> or you could get good and not have to put in so many coins. But the the end result was that even if you weren't very good, you could still keep up with your friends. You just have to keep pumping the coins in. And there was a little bit of pressure on each of us to to get better and to keep up. And if not, to keep pumping the coins in because we were just going to drop out of the game because 
we're there for the long haul to battle for a couple of hours. <laughs> We'd step away into the Wardour Street light out our eyes blinking uh, and emerge into into the sun after this two, three-hour battle. And then we go to the nearby infamous 1K mm. restaurant and have a meal, exhausted. Gee, I think it's one of those examples of uh, you know, something that's not quite as good these days. You know, you mentioned playing Fortnite with, with friends and strangers. And yes, that's much more convenient. I can sit down and get into a game within 60 seconds or something. But there's something about being hunched around that big cabinet with your actual friends and it's just slightly different isn't it it's got a different uh, emotion and texture to it yeah I, I i couldn't agree more and i have asked myself over the last few days whether i'm just being a fogey about this that you know is it just a case of oh back in my day things were better no because it is an entirely different mechanic you are physically there with your friends you're talking directly without any latency, without your voice being compressed. You're able to see their body language. You're you're in their personal space, hunched together. You're physically engaged together. It's like playing a sport. Right, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Uh, a team sport. There was a physical element to it too, because you're standing up all that time. And there are not many games that you would stand up and play for two or three hours today. Not even Beat Saber. I mean, you're going to play it in 20-minute, half-an-hour episodes unless you're some kind of athletic prodigy and i certainly am not <laughs> but, but but something like fortnite something's missing with modern multiplayer games and i'm not saying that it's bad i'm not saying that uh it should go back to the way things were but we have lost something you're absolutely right i mean you, you know the the way people say things online uh, that they wouldn't ever say to somebody's face yes that's the thing so you're in close proximity of people and you you actually do have to have a reasonable degree of social skills to navigate uh, that sure. dungeon <laughs> without being considered um rude if you like yeah you know because someone who keeps taking the food right you could kick them uh, if you're playing an online game yes but when you're with them there's no kicking them they're there with their money you have to negotiate that's the real world <laughs> in the real world you don't wish away that situation or you don't just you know um virtually pull a plug on that person you don't yes uh, you don't ghost them they're there they're your <laughs> friends you've got to deal with it and that element comes into the game and i think that's part of what we lost and it's certainly an important part maybe that's the key to sort of getting people to behave better at Fortnite is to make them go and eat a chinese afterwards together <laughs> <laughs> I think it's got to be worth a try, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, don't get me wrong. The pandemic, I think, showed us that having this is better than not having it. But we could do so much more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it, it's as you say, it's not that online multiplayer games are a replacement for that sort of all pushed together on the couch style of play. It's just slightly different, isn't it? But um yeah, there's something about all being pressed to get around a arcade machine that I think is, you know, really sad that we've lost that. It's sort of like Concord. It's something that was genuinely better in the past. It's that their world's not supposed to work like that, where where we get worse things. But uh, it's one of those rare cases where we have. Uh, you made me sad mentioning Concord. I actually had the means uh, to take one of the last Concord flights, and I chose not to. Oh no. Uh, such a regret. 
could never afford one today, of course, but yeah. back then I actually did have the money to pay for a Concorde flight and I thought, well, I really should probably do it. And I, I didn't. I regret that. Yeah. You mentioned um, Cornet being a bit like a, a sport. Your next choice really was a sport. Can you tell <laughs> us about um, Speedball 2? Oh, Speedball 2 on the Amiga. Some of the best uh, physical gameplay, especially two-player, that I've ever experienced with some of the best AI, the best environment, I think certainly some of the best sound in a video game. Speedball 2 is essentially a, a team future sport, which is loosely based on the classic rollerball, but is actually played on like a an ice hockey sized field. So your team... I think it's uh, it's a handful of players run around, mainly AI controlled except the one under your control, uh, and pick up this metal ball and then have to pass it amongst uh, their teammates and then chuck it into the opponent's goal. But of course, this is a game in which you can also get into fights, much like ice hockey. I think it does take quite a few cues from ice hockey. And players can become injured and taken off by a robotic ambulance. Uh, you hear ice cream vendors yeah. selling their wares. It really had atmosphere, this game. It's made by the Bitmap Brothers, who are probably some of the best British creators <laughs> of video games that we've had. And I would play this two-player with anyone who'd visit, and it would be constantly played for two hours at a time. I would have played for longer, but this was the game that gave me RSI. And this is also the game that cost me, I think, must have been six or seven joysticks because the sheer frenzy of play meant that inevitably you'd go over the top and, and push the sensors too far and and snap something inside. I don't know what it was about those joysticks. Yes. They felt great, but they broke really easily. But it was worth it for a game like Speedball 2. I mean, it definitely had the best AI I think I've ever experienced in a team-based game up to that point. Yes. My my guess is that games have got better AI since, but I've yet yet to play games since. Uh, with that, with that feeling that when you resumed control of a player receiving a ball, because think about this: you're holding a ball, your team's acting with you, you throw it through the air. At which point, you don't know which player you're controlling. But the beauty of Speedball 2 was that it was programmed so well that you'd never feel that you were not in control of every player all the time. Man. That was the magic of that game, that it had that smoothest transition between I'm not controlling this player because that player is a receiver to, oh, yes, I'm now in full control of this character. I don't think anyone had really achieved that so well up until that game. And then the fights were great. There was something really physical and visceral about the beatings you would have uh, in, in corners around the ball. Very ice hockey-like. Mm, yes. And the sound reflected that. You know, it really felt very, uh, very much like... So I, I remember I, I read an interview recently about how they tried to replicate the effect of uh, fighting games in God of War, yes. uh, in the recent God of War. 
not not Ragnarok, the one before. And what they said was that effect is is achieved like fighting games. And how that happens is you have a frame uh, during the collision that is frozen. Mm. Hit pause, they call it, don't they? Yeah. 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 It's beautiful. And I think that's what they had in Speedball 2. Uh, so it, it felt like you were playing not Speedball 2, but Street Fighter 2. And then you had this really excellent league system uh, where where you had some really cool team names as well. And you would be going up the ranks and getting better and better. And, and you would do that as your practice, right? And then you play against friends. And then it became, you know, like I was saying about Gauntlet 2, where you can't just unplug, you can't just rage quit. Uh, and that was the thing you had to endure <laughs> endure your beatings with fortitude <laughs> but yeah the the soundtrack was superb yeah they get the bitmap brothers games really had a particular aesthetic didn't they it was different to anything else at the time and 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 it holds up very well as well doesn't it today yeah yeah in fact i got to play uh speedball 2 uh, it feels like today but it was actually 2003 13 or 14 when I went to EGX with uh, my colleague Lorenzo at the time we were at strategic content and there was a speedball 2 booth and Lorenzo kicks my butt at every game we've ever played he is just the best game player but I beat him at speedball 2 I'm, I'm assuming this is the Amiga version because it also came out on Mega Genesis Mega Mega Drive, didn't it? So, but. Oh, don't talk to me about the other versions. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, not everyone had an Amiga, so <laughs> had to make two. Fair enough. Fair enough. If there were mitigating circumstances, I will take those into account. <laughs> okay, that brings us, I think, to your to your last choice, uh, which comes from 1992. The the previous two games I've talked about didn't have that discontinuity shot but Ultima Underworld uh, is a game where we return to that idea The, the premise of the game, I thought, was going to be uh, very much like um, those earlier simple games on the Amiga, where you would move in a very rigid way through this fantasy world, this dungeon world, with blocky 3D jumps. But no, this wasn't like those games at all. What was it? A Bard's Tale was like that. This was proper texture map 3d graphics so we'd had vector graphics before right so you had elite and elite of course was vector graphics drawn with lines and then we'd had flat shaded 3d graphics and in the arcades you had games like uh, virtua racing and virtua fighter which had this flat shaded polygonal aesthetic but here in ultima underworld you had a game that was smoothly navigable in 3D. Is navigable a word or is it navigatable? Navigable works, I think, yeah. We know what you mean. Well, yeah, but I want to get it right. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to a proper writer, so if I get it wrong, I'm going to squirm for years afterwards and it'll be on the internet forever. But yeah, Ultima Underworld, 
smooth 3D. Now I say smooth 3D, and of course the first time I played this, it was not smooth because I played it on a 16 megahertz 386 SX chip, which was not the best in the world. And I was then forced to upgrade to a 486.33 with 16 megabytes of RAM. And it ran exceptionally well on that. But the thing I I found really profound about Ultimate Underworld was for the first time, I didn't feel like I was observing what was going on and controlling what was going on. I felt like I was what was going on. It was the first truly first-person immersive experience I'd ever had. Now, people might point to Wolfenstein, but Wolfenstein was very flat. It was very two-dimensional. So yes, you were notionally moving in a 3D world, but you couldn't look up or down. And Doom was similarly constrained in that although you could look up and down, it was there was very little verticality to it at all. Uh, and Ultima Underworld preceded Doom, I think. Could be wrong. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, Ultima Underworld was the first video game for home computers or any computer. Perhaps not arcade machines. That fully texture map 3D in this utterly believable world. I mean, it was such a compelling experience. And, and the thing for me that made it even more powerful was that I had described such a game a year or so before it had come out to, to my friends. And I said, imagine a game in which you're moving through a 3D world. You're actually moving through this 3D world in a first-person view, and you suddenly come across these 3D skeletons and you have to fight them. And to my utter surprise, uh, one day I was playing this game and suddenly the music changed, and that I hadn't really heard before. And I swiveled around. I say I swiveled around. Of course, what I mean is I moved the view around, but it felt like I'd swiveled around. And behind me were these skeletons with swords. And this this hadn't happened in a video game before. And this is basically my, my dream coming to life. And I had the lights off, and I was sweating at the end of that battle. But I played that game so relentlessly which was unlike me because by that time I'd become reasonably cynical and I would judge a game quite quickly. But this game I played through to the finish. I learned to read the runes. Now, anyone who knows me knows I'm an arcade gamer. I'm not interested in magical lore or any of that stuff. But no, I learned to read runes so I could cast spells in this game. That's how much this game possessed me. I don't think the game gets as much credit as it should. I, I think it was a groundbreaking game and it changed the industry for me and it changed games. Well, that's your that's your five games that you're going to install on Shahid's console. Um, which of the five do you think you're going to spend the most time playing? Probably Speedball 2 with a friend. Well, that, that's amazing. I mean, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me. I just had, had one last thing I, I wondered if you could just tell us about. You know, the, I suppose your choices here are quite nostalgic and from 
the early decades of the industry when we're just seeing these seismic inventions and changes happening. Another one of those comes a bit later in your career, I suppose, when you first uh, get shown No Man's Sky when you're working at PlayStation. Can you just describe what that was like? Because, you know, for me, that that is still quite a memorable moment um, when that game was shown off and everything it could do. Yeah, it's exactly as you describe. It's one of those, those moments where I saw it and I knew something enormous was about to happen. Uh, Sean Murray sent me a video before it was shown at VGX. I've been talking to him for some time about his plans. He hadn't really revealed anything, kept his cards close to his chest, but we'd worked together on Joe Danger to some extent. And we had recently commissioned a port of Joe Danger to Vita. And so he sent me this and, you know, with a very casual note asking me what I thought that, you know, this has not been shared outside Hello Games. We're about to reveal it at VGX. I put the video on and within three seconds, the hairs on the back of my neck went up. I was at the PlayStation offices at the time. By the end of that video, I felt awe and wonder. And I almost wanted to cry. I almost wanted to cry because what I loved about it was, apart from the fact that the brazen goal to attempt to create a universe procedurally and have it look that beautiful, was that that vision of hope that we used to have in some sci-fi, the covers of the Heinlein books and the Asimov books of the 70s, the hopeful blues and greens and, and mauves of those days, instead of the depressing, gritty, um, recent sci-fi that we'd had. So it was that combination. And, and the final part of that puzzle was that my mission at PlayStation, and this is a self-created mission, was to prove that an independent developer could create a game with AAA impact. That was it. That's all I wanted to do. And, you know, we, we achieved that with two games in the end. And I think beyond, we went beyond two games. There were many others because No Man's Sky paved the way. But the, the funny thing was that as soon as I'd watched it, I started messaging Sean, of course, no reply. And I said, we need to have this. We need to have a conversation. Where are you? Why aren't you replying? Because, of course, at this point, he was on a plane going to VGX. But, yeah, then the, the negotiations began in earnest and they were protracted because they knew what they had. Yeah, the game had a lot of... Um, uh, it just had a lot of attention, didn't it? And was able to be promoted in venues that video games don't normally don't normally get to enter so it had a long feature in the new yorker didn't it and was on telly with stephen colbert and all sorts of things like that so i suppose when that when you get that sort of cut through into the mainstream you know that you've got something unusual on your hands i think part of it was also just the feeling of awe that it inspired in other people it wasn't just me it was the idea that this entire universe that looked so beautiful actually existed in this code and it was Sean's ability to get that feeling across without saying too much 
So he spoke through code. That was the beauty of No Man's Sky for me, that his vision came across more purely and more emotionally in code than it did his words. And many times in video games, we forget that and, and we lean towards the the textual description or the photographic description. And this was much more about how the code was creating this universe. That message seemed to resonate very strongly. Oh my God, an entire universe to explore. It looks really real and it's generated from what? From this tiny little team in Guildford? How did that happen? Hmm. Well, uh, thank you, Shahid. This has been wonderful and so good to hear your memories and uh, the uh, your, your picks as well and why, why you chose them. So yeah, thank you for sharing them with us. I really appreciate it. I'm so sad that you limited me to only five but i'm guessing my notional dream console doesn't have that much memory uh, and i'm satisfied with these i could easily have picked 50. thank you so much to my guest shahid ahmad for coming on the the podcast this week for sharing with us his stories so so glad that he came and talked to me he's had a such a wonderful career right there at the very birth of the video game industry here in britain and uh has continued to be a force within the british games industry um a little confession this was actually the very first episode of my perfect console that i recorded before i'd completely locked down the format and so um I wish that I'd uh, asked him a little bit more about how he came to work at Sony PlayStation and, and his time there championing independent games where he did such wonderful work. So uh, perhaps later on I'll I'll get him back to pick up that story. Um, this was also before I was doing a recap of the, uh, the games that my guests had picked and also before I was asking them to give a name to their console. So I did actually go back to Shahid and uh, ask him for uh, for a brand name for his uh, perfect console. And he told me he would like to call it the Shed Station. Uh, I guess that's a reference to the shed that he works out of. Uh, his five games were Star Raiders, Night Law, Gauntlet, Speedball 2, and of course Ultima Underworld at the end there. You can uh, read more of Shahid's story. He, he gave us some tasters of uh, his... His early years, uh, a very vivid picture that he paints of being in London and on that council estate and trying to find a way out uh, into the, the world of the Britsoft games industry. You can read more about that on Twitter. Shahid has a Twitter account. Uh, I think the website's still around. <laughs> and you can go on and search that. He ran a, a few threads probably 18 months, two years ago, where he where he recounted his story in, in lots of detail and uh, it's well worth going back and reading some of that material you can write to me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com with any comments, with any feedback, with any suggestions for future guests thank you to those of you who have who have done so uh, please if you get a moment then right now just pop on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a little rating and if you have time maybe a one or two sentence review that helps people to discover the podcast in these rather early weeks um you can also if you'd like to support the podcast financially go to acast plus and you can become an early access supporter for 
around three pounds per month, so less than a pound an episode, uh, you will get to listen to the podcast 24 hours before the rest of the public and ad free if that's important to you or if you would just like to show your appreciation. Uh, thank you to those of you who have already done that. It would be great if a few more uh, could pitch in if you're willing and able. Okay, I will be back next week with a new guest, their five games and one more perfect console. Until then, have a great week. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.